If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willers getting bucking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Now that Justin Trudeau is living in the basement, he now wants to build more homes. Oh, here's Scott oh. Thompson. Oh, he's a cheeky boy. Where does he get that? What's going on? What's going on? It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Not much really going on. Uh, we're still getting the fallout of uh, the prime minister's announcement. Of course, their caucus retreat finished up in in London yesterday, and um, the Prime Minister announced a couple of things which are very bizarre. One was to bring the grocery people back in, which we've already done, and uh, and demand that if uh, they don't do something, that they'll be taxed. Well, guess who would pay that tax? <laughs> so I'm not sure what they are doing, but we'll talk about that uh, coming a little later on. Uh, another thing was obviously housing, and this was a pillar out of Pierre Polyev's playbook, uh, which was also announced yesterday. And oddly enough, uh, the NDP, everybody's been swinging the, the, the hammer against the GST on housing for an awfully long time, including the Prime Minister, who back in 2015, uh, reducing or getting rid of the GST on on rental or in building was in the platform, and then they scrapped it. Imagine if they'd done it eight years ago, where we might be right now. Uh, so anyway, now he comes out yesterday and announces all of this, and it all sounds good, but you know, in the end, it's the same party doing the same thing. And again, taking pages out of what people, other playbooks that people have been telling them forever. So it's going to be bizarre to see where this all goes and, and, and where it all ends up. But, um, it, you know, the, the polls again continue to, to falter. I'm not sure if all of a sudden showing up at a fire after the house is already burnt down is really the answer and then promising to buy a fire truck and never have it done uh, you know have it happen again it just seems very bizarre and again uh it took so long for the prime minister and and, and i guess the caucus to realize that they they just weren't connecting with anybody uh and, and their their positions in the polls are showing that right across the board so now they've brought out what they brought out in 2015 and in introducing um uh, you know programs that they were supposed to bring out when they were first elected eight years ago so and the other thing about the accelerator fund which was started 18 months ago the Prime Minister is definitely now, as he does, pushes the emphasis onto the city councils, and rightly so. And now, all right, you guys step up, just like London has stepped up. Well, the accelerator fund application process has already closed. It closed in August. And these buildings that he was standing in front of in London were already part of a part of a solution. So, you know... The application for the fund is closed. It did in August, yet he's calling on the city councils to step up to the plate like London did. And and again, you know, as he has said, it is going to take uh, work from all levels of government. But uh, welcome to the conversation. Like once again, he is late to a conversation and extremely late because economics, 
business, management, the general boring stuff of running the country doesn't really interest him. It's all about socialism. It's all about, you know, doing things that we've been doing for centuries, looking after the poor, saving the planet. Uh, It's all the same stuff. It's just the 2023 version of. And sooner or later, the rubber's got to hit the road. and, and, And sooner or later, people have to see results. And the results that they are seeing, which are crossing every uh, demographic in every region, are that the policies are not working or there are no policies focusing on what is really important to Canadians. And again, climate change is extremely important to Canadians, but you can't use that to pull the wool over everybody's eyes and, and, and distract you away from what the real problem is with Canadians today, and that's affordability whether it's buying groceries, uh, rent, putting a roof over your head, buying a house, putting gas in your car, heating your home, whatever. And, you know, again, the prime minister talking about the grocery stores, the gro- well, <laughs> loosen up the, you know, let more grocery chains come in, but that's about all you can do because you've been through this. You did this just a few months ago and called them all before the competition bureau. So, you know, and then threatening to tax them if they don't lower lower prices. Is anybody thinking who would pay that tax? Um, over here, over here, look, over here. Here's where the pen and paper meet. Here's where you got to do some math. Not just social issues that have been there for decades, if not centuries. We know this city is filled with art and artists and the historic value of this city and, and landscape and such is, is second to none really in the country. And we look at things like Supercrawl only, only to see that. Uh, and, and a new Hamilton centric, uh, documentary, short documentary is running at TIFF this year, the Toronto International Film Festival in the short category, uh, category and uh, Gary Callback is with us the director of and it's um it's a very cool uh, uh, vision of Hamilton, past and present. And, uh, I was a part of it. Uh, Bob Bertina, uh, Brian Wood, people like that also, uh, lent their voices. Uh, it, but it's great to see it all come together and the final product. Uh, Gary, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I am Scott. Thank you very much. I hope so- same for you. So uh, tell us about this project. To somebody who's never seen it, describe it. Mm. Uh, okay, it's called Hamilton Vignettes. Um, so it's a series of uh, short essays, I guess you might say, about Hamilton's past. And um, I've set it against uh, images of uh, you know Hamilton today uh, uh, going under construction. So so all through the film, it's uh, you, you're sort of looking at today and yesterday at the same time and hearing the stories of the uh, of the past and uh, of the uh, our very colorful city so talk to us about the series itself and 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 what what the objective is here uh and the series uh you're talking about well it's just a single film yeah right? no but uh, uh, uh are you talking about the um, the series of of uh, clips and such that you have through um, it? What's your objective? Uh, what is the story you're trying okay, to tell? Um, well, okay, what it is is um, I mean I, I collect I've been collecting these uh, interviews actually to go back to the 1970 late 70s believe it or not. Um, I used to work at community television. Uh, it was called Cable Four at the time. 
Um, and so we did some interviews then, and over the years I've done others. Uh, and I just thought it was a good time to sort of put together uh, the, what I thought were the best of these clips uh, into a, to, to a single short film that will sort of let people know a little bit about our city uh, from, you know, its history. Do people realize how historic this city is? And then some I, of the yeah, and some yeah, of the I, first I that have come out of here. Pardon me. And some of the first that have come out of here. Yeah, no, I think there's 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 a lot about the city, especially um, you know the newcomers, people coming in. Um, so I kind of looked at the film as a kind of an homage to the past, uh, to the to the old city. I, I guess I will call it the old Hamilton that we all once knew and loved, <laughs> and. Um, with uh, you know a new one, like a new Hamilton sort of being built now, um, you know we're gonna the, 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 the past is quickly fading. So I just thought it was a good time to uh, maybe bring this up now. It was very cool. I thought watching this, Gary, how you did take modern versions of the city and what it looks like now, and then overlapped those images of the past. And in some situations, taking streets where you know the landscapes completely changed, changed. and the yeah. buildings have changed. That was very cool to see the transformation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that was the idea of you know for people to sort of reflect on where what things looked like at you know, in the in the past. And, and of course, um, a lot of it, to me, uh, for me, a lot of it was about uh, the people, uh, the the people that came into Hamilton back in those days. Uh, the, some of the interviews were with a number of North Enders, and, uh, you know, they were a very proud part of, uh, of the city. And uh, so I just thought, um, you know, this was a good time to be uh, putting something like this together. I mean, it features um, the Incline Railways, for instance. Yeah. Which, and you know the great uh, story. And we had two. It's hard to believe, but we actually had two of them in the city. And, and, and our city was, in a lot of ways, it seemed like it was a little more advanced in some, some sense than it is now. It's kind of ironic. And, of course, stories of the bay. A lot of uh, when the bay was uh, not so polluted, uh, it's hard to believe that it wasn't once upon a time, like 100 years ago or so. Uh, the Jockey Club racetrack is uh, yeah, certainly yeah. Um, something that people uh, should know about, I believe. Um, you know, and a number of other, uh, There's, I think there's probably something like about 15 or something uh, or 20 stories, short stories, like within the film. The film is about 23 minutes long. One of the stories that stands out, and I, we've talked about this on the air over the years, that at one time, and you, you talked about the Incline Railway, yeah. you, you could take a ferry from Toronto, uh, let at the foot of uh, James Street, then get on a streetcar, take that all the way up to the Incline Rail Railway, take the Incline Railway up the mountain and have lunch, and, and it was like a two-hour trip, where sometimes that's difficult in a car right now. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, and what I found uh, interesting about that was um, we were talking about we we're basically talking about Torontonians coming to Hamilton, yeah, uh, instead of the other way around. So, uh, so I, I know there's just a lot of things about it that um, I think people be interested to hear about. Uh, you know, reflecting on on. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, things have to change. We're we're, we're in a you know we're in a new era for yep. sure. And I don't know what the city is going to look like when they, you know, finally get everything sort of the way they want it. Uh, but we're definitely uh, lost. Like a lot of things you're going to hear about uh, in the film, were, you know, are long gone. We're talking about a hundred years ago, or um, some some uh, some bits were are more about the 50s and 60s in Hamilton, the the club scene, 
downtown. Yeah, that was a great uh, part. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah, things like that. So I just thought these are things that I think a lot of Hamiltonians uh, that have been here for a while certainly remember, and I'm sure they would be fun to reflect upon them again. We've only got a few seconds left, Gary. Talk about, A, how we can see it, and B, uh, the whole stuff at TIFF and how that came about real quick. Correct you. It's the Toronto Independent film. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's not the uh, the big one. <laughs> um, it's uh, Independent Film Festival or the uh, the TO Indie. It's, uh, it's running at the as- same time, incidentally, or close to running close to in conjunction with. No, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, well, the, the TO Indie is basically for uh, um, <laughs> filmmakers with a low budget, a lower budget. <laughs> right. <say>. Right. <laughs> So, that's so how can we how can we see it, Gary? Well, um, I do have uh, um, uh, like I could send a link to. Well, I, I did send you um, yeah. um, a link to the film. Um, I don't know if you're uh, able to sort of post that on on your uh, your website. But search there, Hamilton, search Hamilton, vin- search Hamilton vignettes, and we'll find it. Um, well, actually, the other address would be. I have to find it here. Okay, it's a YouTube channel, um, my YouTube channel, which is, um, I can spell it G-K, that's G-E-E-K-A-Y, at G-K-1349. It sounds, and if you get, go to that, you should come to my You'll uh, search channel. it, yeah. Yeah, you can and, find and it on we'll YouTube that way, yeah. yeah. Gary, good luck with it. Great piece of work. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for um, taking a part in it. Any pro, uh, any time. Uh, Gary Callback with us, director of uh, Hamilton Vignettes, which is uh, about a 23-minute uh, capture of some of the great history of this great city. You know, we hear about this stuff a lot, and I, I don't know whether we're just complacent with it or whether um, we, uh, we just can't stay ahead of it. Uh, the bad guys are one step ahead of the good guys. Government websites in four provinces and territories were shut down on Thursday. Uh, at least two jurisdictions blaming cyber attacks for their outages. Uh, websites for the Yukon, Manitoba, Prince Edward Island, none of it were all inaccessible throughout the day. And uh, PEI in the Yukon said it was cyber attacks that was uh, behind their shutdowns. David Shipley with his cybersecurity expert and CEO of uh, Boceron Security and here now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. So, uh, David, how do they know that they were uh, cyber attacks? Is that because there's ransomware and they're being asked for money? No, what we're seeing here is basically imagine you only have a limited number of phone lines and people keep prank calling you so much that no one else can get through. And that's essentially what happens in an Internet denial of service or dedicated denial of service attacks. And in the case of the larger DDoS attacks, sometimes tens of thousands of hijacked devices think Internet security cameras, routers, compromised computers with malware are collected into what's known as a a bot army. And they're all uh, legitimate internet traffic normally, but when they're turned and harnessed as as an army, as it were, against a uh, website, they can just flood it with malicious traffic to the point that the website becomes unavailable to everybody else. It's, it's a it's a prank. It's a hacktivism thing. Sometimes, very rarely, it's used to cover tracks in more sophisticated attacks. But I suspect this is more about harassment from Russian hacktivist groups than it is um, any kind of uh, more sophisticated attack. Is this about security, David, or not enough capacity? Or, you know, the more capacity you have, the more they'll do it. 
Well, it is a cat and mouse game. And, and um, normally, like large retailers, Amazon, Microsoft actually faced a spate of these for a number of uh, Christmas holiday seasons where new games would launch and um, uh, cyber criminals would launch DDoS attacks and try and extort money to say, listen, we're going to ruin everybody's Christmas unless you pay us $100,000 to not uh, to block your servers. So you can do things like building additional capacity, using very large internet backbone um, providers to deflect this kind of traffic, but it is one hell of a nuisance to deal with. So uh, the people who are doing it working for um, uh, countries such as Russia or China or what have you, what, how are they generating revenue by this? How are they, or, or, How can they afford to just sit there and do this all day? Somebody's obviously paying them. <laughs> well, some people are hacktivists, genuine hacktivists that are chuffed at Canada for supporting the people of Ukraine trying to defend their country. So, you know, they got time on their hands and they have a botnet <laughs> to turn on this. In other cases, we don't know if the governments have received extortion notes from these groups to say, pay us money and you're, get your online services back up and running. Um, that could be a financial motivation or it could actually be backed by a nation state, Iran, um, Russia, North North Korea have known to do this, and they're just mad. So they're just going to use the resources they have to cause headaches. And so uh, is the government more vulnerable than, say, private companies? Is the government doing enough? Because uh, obviously, uh, well, I guess one is just as important as the other. They all control systems. But is the government's uh, security where it should be compared to the private industry? Uh, well, it, it all depends on the size. Like, look at the look at the provinces and territories they're picking on. PEI, Yukon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Quebec's fairly large, so that one was kind of interesting to see. Um, but you know, it, it goes to the size of the government itself and the economy, and and how much tax dollars they're putting into the infrastructure and security side. And let's be honest, from a political standpoint, it's not like voters are beating down um, Doug Ford's desk to say you need to spend more on cybersecurity for the province of Ontario. For example, we're going to talk about roads, schools, hospitals, um, the housing crisis, and politicians are going to focus their priorities on those areas. And it's until this kind of pain actually becomes a priority for um, citizens and taxpayers, it's not going to get all the attention that it probably deserves. Uh, More nuisance than costly or just as costly? More nuisance than costly. Um, and, you know, as long as it's 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 basically, I mean, this is the digital equivalent of a trucker uh, convoy, right? Like just blocking up the things, being yeah. annoying, loud, and and uh, generally irritating, um, but, you know, not necessarily the world's biggest threat. Um, but in this case, you know, if it continues for weeks or months and all of a sudden people can't access services, particularly in more remote communities, then it becomes more serious. Uh, is it possible or do we have any recourse with investigation or trying to zero in on these uh, hackers? Oh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really, really hard to, to do anything about this. And when I was at the University of New Brunswick as the uh, security lead there, we got hit with a 50,000 computer strong botnet because one of our students was a competitive Call of Duty gamer and three kids uh, – bought themselves a Russian botnet for a couple of hours, knocked the entire university offline just so they could uh, mess with this kid. You know, oh, so, so oh man. Wow. Yeah. 
how, you know, here you are, uh, you know, Bosron security trying to fight for truth and justice. And, and this is sort of the motive behind it. You must shake your head at times. Oh, listen, the stories I can tell you would would uh, would take days on end. But the Internet is as bizarre and creative as humanity itself. So what's the message here, David? How do we stay ahead of this? How do we at least put up a good fight? I, I think the biggest thing is folks to stay calm. And um, usually these kinds of little internet storms pass within a couple of hours or a day or two because it is expensive on the attacker side to, you know, foist this infrastructure and, and, and keep these attacks and to stay, keep this in perspective. And it's hard because the average listener is probably thinking, well, isn't a cyber attack a cyber attack? And it's not. It's This is internet graffiti. This is annoying protest. Hmm. This isn't um, an arsonist or someone robbing the bank. This is this is on the annoying spectrum of cybersecurity. Do we learn from these sorts of incidents? I, I don't think there's there's much that we we can learn. It, it basically it speaks to the fact that the internet was never designed to do what we do today. You know, everyone has this myth that it came out of the military and it was robust, but they forget that it was then turned over to universities. And universities were a collegial, trusting environment, and the internet was not built for a world of hostility. And that's where we are. Um, and I wow. think there are some big conversations about whether Canada and other Western countries need to have a different kind of internet for those countries that share our democratic values and have mutual legal agreements in place so we can prosecute cyber criminals versus the lawless lands that are um, often ideologically opposed to our country. Fascinating discussion. David Shipley with his cybersecurity expert and CEO of Oseron Security, uh, some smaller provinces' websites being hit, and more internet graffiti, uh, which is – is that the term you use, David? That's, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, it's, uh, it's, it's basically the internet equivalent of graffiti. It's 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 not uh, – this is not the Ocean's Eleven. If you want to see the Ocean's Eleven right now, it's the casino hack in Las Vegas yeah. that is just biblical in nature. Uh, David Shipley, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boceron Security. Thank you, David. Lots of chatter about building homes and green belts and boundaries and all of this stuff. And um, and now, of course, because of years of neglect, we now have a crisis on our hands and we have to make up for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years of of uh, idle shovels, let's say. But the one thing I think that the green belt debate has brought forward and whether that's Doug Ford nibbling at the green belt or not, is that it is brought of attention to all of a sudden, well, we have 20 to 40 years of land before we even have to touch the green belt, who uh, housing experts have had on the show academics many times saying the exact same thing, but we never talk about that. And But it has drawn attention to, well, if we've got all this land, why haven't we built on that either? And where has why has that stalled? And if we've got so much land, why is there a shortage? Randall Denley comes at it from the east, which is an interesting uh, way to look at it. Uh, Randall Denley, go east, Doug Ford, where more houses can be built with less controversy. While the rest of Ontario has been growing rapidly, eastern Ontario cities haven't kept pace. Uh, Randall is with us now. You can also read him in the uh, National Post or the Ottawa Citizen. Randall, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Uh, are you surprised nobody's talked about this before? Um, where do you think the province is with this, or just the idea in general? Why haven't we moved east? Well, we've had a long history in Ontario of uh, provincial governments that have a, a very low awareness of eastern Ontario. Even when Dalton McGuinty from Ottawa 
with the Premier still, you know, Eastern Ontario, don't worry about that. It's all about Toronto. And I, you know, I look at the, the problem that the Conservatives have set themselves here, and it's the same one the Liberals had before. Okay, well, growth has almost all got to go in what they call the greater golden horseshoe. Yeah. You know, big horseshoe of land outside the green belt from Niagara to Peterborough. But then, well, well, no one lived further than Peterborough. So it's all got to go in here. doesn't matter how congested, how many highways it takes, how much transit it takes, how much controversy there is. It's all got to go here. You know, I'm sitting here in Ottawa thinking, well, okay, Eastern Ontario, that's a pretty big area. We got Kingston, we've got uh, Cornwall, we've got Brockville, Ottawa. No, in Ottawa. And and beautiful Europe. areas along the water. Yeah, they're on the water, and they're between the water and the 401. I mean, uh, you know, Kingston, Brockville, and Cornwall are very well situated in quite small cities. They hardly grow at all. Kingston's been gaining some ground in the last few years, but the other two, they're almost static. And is this lack? Is, is this plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe? Well, what's your plan for Eastern Ontario? Oh, well, we don't really have one. Is that because the business is around the Greater Golden Horseshoe and the money's around there? Again, uh, what about jobs, that sort of thing out there? And does that matter now that we're in, you know, in a post-pandemic world? Yeah, it's certainly not as important as it was now that we have a lot of people who are working remotely from their cottage or wherever they choose to live. So I think that opens an opportunity for some of these smaller cities that are you know, a little further from Toronto. But you know, the government could help, too, by moving a provincial agency to one of those cities. There's a lot of things they could do to help. But if there was housing in that any of those cities, big boost of housing, people would come there because they could actually get a house. You know, we've all gone on at length about how difficult it is for people to get a house in the GTA now. And you, if you're a young person, you just can't even contemplate it, really. It's it's a ridiculous situation. And every government is just furiously trying to come up with something that sounds like something. And what I'm suggesting here is, well, why don't we do the obvious thing? We have eastern Ontario, which is very underpopulated, great part of the province. Maybe people would like to live there. How's that? <laughs> uh, you know, and my guess why this hasn't happened uh, to date, Randall, is this is uh, considered urban sprawl. And environmentalists don't want any sort of urban sprawl or progress in that respect, which is how we got to where we are. So is yeah, that not it, considered urban sprawl? It, it isn't really, though, because what you're talking is taking the existing city and making it bigger, which is the process. Yeah, that's going to happen, whether it's in the GTA, yeah. on the other side of the green belt. The thing you don't hear much about from people who purport to be environmentalists is, oh, the green belt, you know, it's just fantastic. Well, what about all that, you know, equal sized amount of land on the other side of it? Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, you can yeah. build up there. <laughs> so to connect those things, of course, you know, we have to build highways through the green belt. You have to take people further every day if they're coming in towards Toronto. How does that make sense? And, you know, from an Ottawa perspective, it's one thing people know here is that, A, they love green belts, but B, they're completely useless at containing growth. All it does is push growth out further. 
And what, what amazes me, too, Randall, is people think this is yes or no, cut and dry, left, right, black, white. Uh, as you mentioned, the 20 to 40 years of land, or we mentioned the 20, 40 years, years of land before you hit the green belt. But what happens after that? This all needs to be planned now. I mean, we just can't look at something and then never touch it again. The whole idea was to be reviewed every five, uh, 10 years or so. And again, I, I'm not, uh, you, you know, uh, suggesting we carve the thing to pieces or anything, but this has to be studied with a little bit more of an open mind than what it has been. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'll be interested to see what comes out of this provincial review of all 800 pieces of land where someone said, hey, I'd like to get this uh, taken out of the green belt and used for something else. I'm sure that the vast majority of it will stay in the green belt, but it's going to be, I hope, <coughs> excuse me, illuminating in terms of just how useful is this land. Because once uh, Dalton began to do a circle around it and says green belt, then somehow it became like Boreal forest that couldn't be touched or something. Yeah. You know. Somebody said to me, I heard recently that all of Toronto, uh, 200 years ago or 100 years, it was all uh, built on, on Greenbelt. Uh, Randall Denley with his author and columnist, Ottawa Citizen National Post, and uh, his latest in uh, both those, uh, Go East, Doug Ford, where more houses can be built with less controversy. Interesting point, Randall. Thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, you're welcome. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CHML. We were talking earlier in the week, uh, Kim Jong-un making the trip on his... uh, slow train to Russia in order to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, that has happened. I just, uh, he may even still be there. We'll get that clarification in a sec. But now uh, there's chatter of Putin trying to bring Belarus into the fold. Does that change things? Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, and here now. Jack, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. So how dangerous are these three together? Is it any different than what we have now with the three? Uh, Not fundamentally, no. I mean, basically, uh, Mr. Lukashenko's overtures for uh, a firm alliance indicate the extent to which he has become a Putin sock puppet and really has very few options. It's not a coincidence, I think, that he uh, that he talks about forming an axis in at, at about the same time the uh, the European Parliament is passing a resolution labeling him an accomplice to Putin's war crimes in Ukraine and urging the International Criminal Court to uh, put out a warrant for his arrest as a war criminal he's increasingly a pariah and uh pariahs are tending to huddle together in this case is is Belarus a willing participant here? I mean, there I understand their army's not fighting uh, with Russia in Ukraine. It's a more or less willing participant at the level of the leadership. As I say, Lukashenko is a Putin acolyte, and he's not going to do anything to cross the uh, the uh, the boss. Uh, the population of Belarus uh, probably isn't enthusiastic about this at all, but they're not going to be consulted. Is China okay with this? Uh, I was talking earlier to an expert about with uh, Kim Jong-un and Putin meeting. Does this add anything to the mix for China? Well, well, I th- it, it, uh, it does in the sense that we're increasingly seeing the formation of an alignment of authoritarian regimes. Uh, and it's, 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 it's deepening. It's, uh, it's coalescing. 
it's uh, it's crystallizing and it's in some ways very much like the polarization of geopolitics that we saw during the cold war when you had the uh, the the liberal democracies more or less led by the united states in one camp and the uh, the communist regimes in the other now the difference is that uh, ideology matters relatively little to uh, to this crop of authoritarian dictators but the pattern is essentially the same uh, where does this leave the Wagner group, the the uh, the uh, mercenary army that was that was once uh, uh, marching to to Moscow and such? We know they retreated to Belarus. Are they a part of this equation in any way, or would they be? Uh, not really. I think the Wagner group is essentially going to uh, become a um, a subset of the Russian army, with uh, with some exceptions. It's not entirely devoid of its own initiatives and its own connections elsewhere, but uh, I think its capacity for independent action is pretty much compromised. Uh, any of this matter in the fight with Ukraine? How does this change that discussion? Uh, Belarus is uh, is geographically positioned in proximity to Ukraine, so it's uh, it's it's increasing cooperation with Russia complicates things. The North Korean angle is the one that's really of concern because North Korea can supply the uh, small arms ammunition, the artillery shells, the relatively low-tech munitions that Russia is running low on in Ukraine. And it's going to do that in exchange for uh, access to Russian high-tech sectors like uh, ballistic missile technology, uh, reconnaissance satellites that could also increase the... uh, the lethality, the reliability, the accuracy of its ballistic missiles. So in that sense, we are looking at a, a rather darkening picture. Uh, is is Kim Jong-un still in Russia? Uh, I have no idea. I wouldn't be surprised. Because I had under, from what I had heard yesterday, that uh, the visitation had been extended. But again, who knows? Um, I, I it, heard the same reports, but uh, we don't have reliable information on that. Uh, North Korea and Russia meeting like this. Is this a turning point for Ukraine in, in that battle? Well, it's uh, it's obviously not good news, because the more that North Korea is able to supply Russia with munitions, uh, the uh, the more readily Russia can keep up the pressure. So it may mean a, a longer and a bloodier conflict as far as Ukraine is concerned. How about Western allies? Does that change our position in what we're doing to support Ukraine? I think it, it uh, as always, forces us to, uh, to ante up if we're, if, if we're serious about uh, following through on our rhetoric about, uh, about walking the talk. Um, it does mean that uh, North Korea is increasingly a pariah, but there's not uh, there's not an awful lot that can be done to deepen its isolation. It's already pretty isolated. Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program to work, uh, coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Mike, uh, Monk School, University of Toronto, Belarus, joining uh, North Korea and Russia, and uh, the uh, the conflict continues. Jack, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Don't go away. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, the Prime Minister finishing off his uh, caucus retreat in London, Ontario yesterday, making some uh, interesting uh, 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 announcements, including the removal of uh, the GST on rental housing, something that both uh, the NDP and the Conservatives have been talking about for a long time. And he was actually talking about back in 2015 when it was uh, one of their initial uh, campaign promises. That plus bringing the grocery store CEOs back in to do what? Henry Jasek is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Here is, he is here now. Henry, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Your take on the fallout or the reaction to what happened after the caucus meetings in London. Your thoughts? Well, what, what I uh, what I see is we're finally beginning to see the plan that uh, that the Liberals and the Prime Minister had, I think, all along for this year. Uh, we we can start to see pieces coming together. Uh, of course, we didn't know what the plan was, so uh, we we didn't have that map, but we we can certainly see it now. And what I think happened is that the government did see that it was uh, in the spring that it was not meeting uh, Canadians' ex- expectations, particularly with the two big issues of uh, food and, and shelter. And uh, so if you're going to really do a good job on this, the first thing you have to do is make sure you have uh, cabinet ministers who are going to be able to work on these two areas and, and, ha- and have an Im- impact. And we saw that, of course, in, in the summertime. But we didn't see the policies that were going to come. And, of course, they don't. Usually, the governments would not, uh, you know, have uh, policies in the summertime because they figure people aren't paying attention. Attention. So it's in September after Labor Day that we would start to see them, and that's what we've seen. And especially the idea with a, you know, have a caucus all together, sort of get them all turned, you know, excited, and then come before the public and start uh, laying out some of these uh, uh, issues uh, and policies to deal with these two areas. I think this is only the beginning. I think we're going to see all sorts of different things, some of them small, some of them specialized. But I think the goal is by the, by the end of October, they, what he wants to do, I think, is really get down to the 2% inflation uh, overall. But I think also he wants to do is basically get a freeze on food prices and I think um, between now and the end of December, and I think that's why he's going to be talking to the CEOs of the uh, big food companies, uh, retail food companies. Before we get to the food part of this, Henry, uh, how will Canadians react to a prime minister that always seems late to the fire? I mean, this province, uh, the promise of uh, the GST rebate on rental housing goes back to 2015. Um, the other opposition parties have already talked about this. Um, he, he seems to be slow on economic issues like this. How are Canadians going to react to this now? Well, we'll have to see. I think, quite frankly, if, if his plan works, I think, I think he sh- he should see results in uh, in the public opinion polls uh, probably by by January or February uh, th- that that in fact they're seeing that but they, because basically if they if people start seeing that uh, things are getting better beginning certainly beginning in the beginning of November give them a few months to to absorb it to, to, for them and also a big 
important thing for that they hope for is that people will be having more money in their pockets and feeling better during the holidays and 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 that that is and especially uh their spending in November and December so they would hope that the people are going to be you know uh happy about how the how the uh holiday season went and uh that they were able to buy the gifts that they wanted and uh and everything you know and and have the a good old time and that that generally should follow up if that works then that should generally shallow, uh, follow up with good public uh, uh re, you know public opinion polls January February and into March so you you know the 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 the, it, the government has to you know do a I think when it's laying out this sort of big dramatic change, uh, it has it has to make sure it's doing it at the appropriate times. Cabinet, you know, cabinet shuffles in the summertime. It's policies beginning uh, putting out at the end of uh, November, uh, after uh, Labor Day. Now you could say, well, they should have done all, they could have done this all last year, but they, they were, you know, uh, I think they thought they still didn't have to make the changes they had to make. But I think. When we got into uh, this particular uh, calendar year, I, I think they began to see it, and then they figured, okay, we got to have a year-long plan here to get back on top of the the political heap, and, and ter- as far as the uh, you know, as far as the uh, polls are concerned. And I think at that point, he would say, if 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 the whole thing works the way they want it, and we'll have to see if it does. Then that gives him over a year, uh, between, you know, of, of of saying, okay, things are all working, and having it see, seep into people that in fact he's uh, he's uh, you know done a good job, and they'll they'll look at the you know at that period of next year and into uh, into the into the following year and at the next election. It, it, it seems to me, Henry, that he's just grasping at straws. He knows that he's 15 points down, according to right. Abacus yesterday. Uh, he's telling things that people want to hear right now. Uh, the other issue, you're talking about the food. Um, we just had a whole uh, uh, thing where all the CEOs came in and talked about food and, and the prices of. So what's different now? Like, he's already done that. And then he talked about, well, if they don't, you know, uh, conform and I don't know, somehow lower prices that he'll tax them. Well, we know where that's going to go. It's going to come out of our pockets. Well, what I what I would think, first of all, this is going to be a private meeting. So we're not going to see what he's saying to these uh, top, these CEOs. But I, if I was there, what I would predict what we're seeing is he said he probably is, will say to them, you see, I'm really concerned about these prices. I don't expect you to roll back any prices, but I want some uh, stability through the holidays, between now and the holiday season. And that's exactly what they did last year. Uh, And we're here again. Yeah, but what he's going to do this year is he's going to say, okay, uh, he can't just ask them to do give them something. They're going to say, hey, we want something. And what what did they want? He's going to say, okay, you have to tell me where there are costs in the supply chain coming up to food in in your stores. How can we how can we uh, deal with that uh, supply chain and maybe take off taxes in particular places so that we can stabilize the food? Now, that one way would be one way would be transportation and the carbon tax. But he's not going to do that. Like, I I just don't see where he's going with this. Well, that's the thing is we don't see his, his what he's all the plans that he has. And they're going to come. They're going to come out as surprises, and uh, 
Uh, you know, he, one where, you know, there may be certain taxes in the trucking industry, for example, that he may knock off and say, okay, we know a lot of costs of getting food to stores and all that is the trucking industry. There's got to be taxes in there they can get rid of for the, you know, for a while at least that would then stabilize the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, the cost of food. You know, it's just like, you know, there's all, you know, the, we've seen what he's done with rental housing saying, okay, we have a fund and uh, I'm going to work with the municipalities. I'm going to work with people who want to build rental housing and we're we're going to give give money for people to do the, uh, the you know the the companies to do that and for cities to uh, help uh, coordinate that particularly by making it easier to build rental housing inside the cities and 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 then hoping and expecting and uh, that it's going to stimulate these builders to build these and we already had a statement a very interesting statement from the Ontario Home Builders Association Canadian Home Builders Association they're very enthusiastic about this cuz oh everybody anytime anybody is going to cut taxes uh, and everybody's going to be excited about it the question is why the hell is it happening now and why didn't it happen years ago uh and and, and again it's taking stuff out of opposition's playbook here it, it just seems oh, very yeah. odd okay. it'll be fascinating to see how this goes henry thank you for the time as always okay very good have a good weekend you Bye-bye. too henry jasek professor of political science mcmaster university i don't know i don't I, I don't see how you can all of a sudden change your tune as this has happened so many times and all of a sudden voila the problem solved good luck with that one as we know and as the federal government is in trouble now because of concentrating solely on solo issues and nothing about managing the country or or its infrastructure or economics or any of that um has now come back to bite them with where they are in the polls well you might remember during uh, uh you know any sort of fear-mongering fear-mongering period that the liberals go through whether it's uh, scaring you about losing the rights to an abortion whether it's handguns whether it's climate change whether it's the United States of America below us. Um, y- they seem to get distracted with stuff that um, is important to Canadians, but certainly not the kitchen table issues that we're all viewing today. Well, you might remember way back when uh, banning guns and handguns and gun buybacks were all of the chatter coming out of this uh, government and the group the federal government called the primary source of information for industry in the retail ban firearm bar uh, buyback says it still does not know when the program will begin and this as the amnesty on banned firearms is set to expire on October 30th. I implore the government to announce an amnesty extension as soon as possible to alleviate the stress for a lot of people that own these firearms, say the Canadian Sports Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. So, uh, I don't know. Again, if whenever you need a distraction... Here we go. Uh, Tony Bernardo is with us, Executive Director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association, and here now. Tony, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, I am doing well. Thank you, Scott. I hope you are, too. So far, so good, Tony. So explain this to us. What was supposed to happen? What hasn't happened? Okay. Well, first of all, this deadline, this is the second or third time they've moved it already. So it's coming up uh, in October, and uh, we expect that they will move it again because they've got a real problem. When they went ahead and they did this, they did this based on some philosophical thought that they had. They never gave any practical consideration as to how to do it. The actual 
mechanics, the nuts and bolts. Uh, when they went to the police unions, they basically said, not a chance. We're not going to go to people who've committed no crimes at all, steal their property, and be cast into the, the realm of bad guys just because of some government directive. So then they went to the army, and of course, you know what the army said. They don't even have enough soldiers right now to man the army, so how they were they going to do it? Then they started hunting around to private security firms to see if they could get that to happen. So here you got completely untrained private security people who aren't licensed to possess these types of firearms, taking them away from people who are licensed and trained to possess those types of firearms. What could go wrong? Um, then, of course, they discovered that this was a whole lot of money. We're not talking a couple of mil here. We're talking a lot of money. Because it's not just a matter of compensating Canadians, and I have to stress lawful licensed Canadians who jump through all the government hoops in order to obtain these firearms. It's not just compensating them for the firearms, but it's for the firearms optics and the accessories and the ammunition and the cleaning supplies. And when you talk all this stuff up, you're into the billions of dollars, and they don't have any money. It sounds like this program has been lost in the sauce, Tony. (laughs) That's a good way of putting that, but, you know, realistically, it was like one single solitary pea floating in the entire bowl of sauce. There was really (laughs) not much substance. And, you know, what they told the firearms owners of Canada is you have to take your firearm and you have to store it in exactly the same manner that the law specified that you had to store it before the ban. <laughs> and you just store it like that. You're not allowed to use it. You're not allowed to take it to the range and shoot it or do anything like that. You just have to store it. So they are stored in the same places, in the same manner, by the same people that they were before 2020. Mm. And you probably noticed there hasn't been any mass shootings. So it, sa- it sounds like you expect, Tony, this extension will be extended yet again until this becomes a political issue for them again, and it's worth the mileage. Well, I think that's exactly it. I mean, I really think that when it comes down to this type of stuff, the, the, this is a real sizzle issue. There's not much stake in it. There's a lot of sizzle, and the liberals love that sizzle. And it seems to be able to, to bring out a certain number of their supporters. But in this particular case, uh, the bloom is really off the rose here because the police are saying that over 85% of the firearms used in crime in Canada don't yeah. even come from Canada. They're smuggled yeah. in from the United States. And, of course, this addresses that issue zero. All right, uh, the gun amnesty is set to expire, and it isn't even started yet, and it looks like another extension until the Prime Minister uh, uses it as a political issue again. Tony Bernardo, Executive Director, Canadian Sports Shooting Association. Tony, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. As always, Scott, thank you very much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
All right, you're aware that, uh, or maybe not, the Liberal Caucus retreat in London ended up yesterday. A couple of major announcements, uh, one on housing, which was removing the GST, uh, or sorry, the HST from uh, uh, rental housing, new rental housing. Uh, that's in the conservative platform. The NDP have been calling for that for quite a while as well. And it was actually a 2015, uh, promise in the election campaign for the prime minister. Uh, that and big groceries holding, uh, grocers holding them to account. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well, thank you. Your thoughts on where the Prime Minister is now? I mean, obviously, you're very much down in the polls and, and a complete about-face when it comes to housing and, and, and pulling and tricks out of the basket that many of the opposition parties have already come up with. What are your thoughts on uh, what he's doing, and is it too little, too late? Does he need to keep going? Do more. Um, I'm going to step back uh, uh, and just let me say about the HST um, a cancellation on rental housing. That's been called for by the uh, construction industry that builds rental housing for, oh, my goodness, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and it was, yes, the NDP. Give them credit. They did, too. Many, many, many companies and uh, uh, analysts have been calling on that for, oh, I can't remember how long, 10, 15, 20 years. So I'm, before I go negative, I'm going to be very critical. I want to acknowledge that that was, first of all, was long overdue. And they should have done it the year that they promised it in 2015. But hey, better late than never. So that was a positive step forward on the rental side. Now, let me go big picture and uh, on this. I've, I think, in my judgment, that um, Mr. Trudeau has decided to double down, triple down, quadruple down on what he's done for the past 10 years. Uh, that is to say, he's not going to change direction. That what we saw in London was window dressing. And I mean by window dressing, he announced a program that had already been announced. Yeah. Uh, two, three, four months before. But more importantly, you know, the prime minister up there at the podium, of course, he's going to attract the attention of any prime minister. Well, they've got the the bully pulpit is famously President Theodore Roosevelt said that 100 years ago, the leader of the country has the bully pulpit. Everybody focuses. So the per- prime minister stands up. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And nobody has the time to say, I'm going to go drill down and and fact check and do due diligence check on this. I do. Only because I suppose I was a mortgage manager for nine years and I lent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on mortgage residential housing. Yes, it was a long time ago. It was in the 70s and the 80s. But I assure you, lending money is not fundamentally different today because I have friends in the business and it's not fundamentally different today. So where I'm going with this is this. That housing program he announced in London yesterday will build 2,000 houses. (laughs) Does everybody understand in this country, we are missing 3.5 million houses, shortfall. That's Canada Mortgage and Housing. That's the federal crown corporation owned by the government of Canada, whose president was appointed by, oh my goodness, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And the deputy chief economist of CMHC was on Vashi's program last night. Power and politics, sorry, not power and politics, power player, whatever they call it on CTV, sorry. And he said, this doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell. I'm I'm paraphrasing, okay? He said, this is not going to solve our housing prices. And now if, if I can jump over to Andrew Coyne from the Globe and Mail, I agree with him completely. I've been saying it for probably five years. We have a shortage of homes, a shortage of housing. We are not building enough housing. And nothing that the prime minister announced, nothing is going to address that. 
And the rental market is a separate issue. We're now talking, I, I think we're talking primarily the, the home market, the, the, the home ownership market. Uh, Scott, I want to make one more point because there's so many angles to this. And I know people probably, mm-hmm. they get a headache listening and talking about this. I want to go big picture again. The, the real estate market, and we're talking residential only for people. We're not talking commercial buildings and shopping malls. So let's get that off the table. We're just talking housing. Now, housing can be tall, high-rise buildings called rental or condo, or they can be low-rise called garden homes, townhouses, or houses, single-family homes. Okay, so I want to do a first divide, the rental um, ownership split. On the rental side, we have a problem. We've had a problem for a long time. I've already acknowledged what he did in getting rid of the HST. Now let's go over to the ownership side. This is where the problem is. Contrary to our, our progressive people who are saying it's a shortage of affordable housing, and they're muddying the waters deliberately, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Okay? Including uh, the, the former NDP um, leader of Ontario, Ms. Horvath, who I, whom I respect. But they are deliberately muddying the waters. Yeah. Because if we mean affordable housing, low-income people that had, don't have a job and don't have any money and can't pay commercial market rents, that's a different situation from large numbers in the middle class that can't own a home. Let's go back to the, the narrow definition. What we once upon a time when I was younger, we used to call subsidized housing. We also called it low rent housing. And then people said that's insensitive. It's rude. It was descriptive. So I won't call it that because I don't want to get all kinds of ugly emails from progressives who say I don't, I'm not sensitive. Okay. But that market is very small. 7.4% of the Canadian population is yeah. under the poverty line. We have a very, we have one of the lowest poverty rates on planet Earth, according to the OECD. We're in the bottom third of the richest countries in the world. So what I'm trying to say with all of this numbers and barrage of stuff, our problem is in the mass market of the middle class, the working class, whatever you want to call them. We are not building enough houses. And that fundamentally, as the Globe and Mail said in their in their editorial list last week, and what I've been saying to you on your program for the last two or three years is the the worst culprit, the most important culprit in all of this is at the municipal level. Municipal councillors in the big cities, the Hamiltons, the Torontos, the GTA, the Vancouver's, the city of Ottawa have developed this ethos that building lots and lots and lots of new homes on the edge of the city is bad, it's evil, it's, it's, it's creating or contributing to global warming, and they have deliberately suppressed the 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 approval of new housing. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is Mr. Trudeau, if he wants to get serious, and he did not, is he has to confront the barriers that have been established over many years by the big cities, Hamilton, City of Ottawa, GTA, Vancouver, and essentially, I'll be really crude to get to my point quickly, they've got to declare war on municipal councillors across Canada. And they've got to say, we are going to set aside your legislation, override it, whether it's the federal override with federal right under the Constitution. They've got to break up these barriers that are stopping the prevent the, the development of, of new homes. We need 3.5 million high-rise, low-rise, condo, townhouse, garden home, single family, doesn't matter. And the barriers in place 
are pro- are profound. They're multiple, and they're partly driven by NIMBY. They're partly driven by the ideology of the left that hates cars and hates the expansion to the suburbs, which they call uh, 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 yeah. suburban sprawl. And they're going to have to confront this because the cities are the ones, the municipalities are the ones that control zoning and the building permit process. Amen. Amen to you. Uh, Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, have yourself a great weekend. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Scott. All right. It's been quite a week, a Liberal Caucus retreat in London, and uh, as well, more polls uh, that uh, talk about a changing trend in uh, Canadian thoughts. Let's bring in Dr. Raheem Mohammed, political commentator and writer, former professor with uh, Center College at Wake Forest University, and with us now. Raheem, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Always wonderful to be joining you, Scott. So, Raheem, your thoughts on what we saw over the course of the week with the Liberal Caucus retreat in London, Ontario. Uh, going in, uh, we were hearing a, a lot of dissension within the ranks, disgruntled uh, MPs and such, uh, the Prime Minister not listening, and then all of a sudden, bazoom, an about-face, and an announcement on housing regarding dropping the uh, HST for rental construction, which, by the way, both opposition parties and lots of housing experts have been calling for for a long time. What are your thoughts on how all of this, uh, the fallout of all of it and the reaction? Sure. And I think the other big announcement was 20,000 new units in London. Uh, so that is right. uh, you know, 20,000 yeah. units in you know, a medium-sized Canadian city, I think around the size of Hamilton, maybe a little bit smaller. Um, so not exactly earth-shattering. I do think um, removing the GST on, on rental starts is a good idea. It's an idea uh, the Liberal Party has been promising for quite some time, I think. It's, um, you know, it's, it's encouraging to see some action on housing or at least acknowledgement on the part of the Liberal government that there is a problem. But it does seem as though um, the action is coming belatedly and um, the action is rather meager. Rather meager. Uh, it seems that the Prime Minister of late, no matter what the pressing issue is for Canadians, a little late to the fire. And uh, mm-hmm. so uh, although everybody is saying that this is a good idea, one of you know many that are needed, uh, how do Canadians interpret this? Because, as you said, this was a promise back in 2015 that wasn't acted on. And all of a sudden, now an about face. Are Canadians going to buy in? Well, I think, again, we're seeing action that's too little too late. And I think, you know, we're talking about 20,000 uh, units in a medium-sized city. I think uh, the uh, the estimate is that we need something in the neighborhood of four to five million houses in the next five years, um, you know, to keep pace with population growth. So to me, uh, this seems like a token, and I think it conveys the unfortunate fact, um, you know, that not everyone is suffering under you know the current housing policy under the status quo. It's an issue that cuts across both socioeconomic lines um, and generational lines and sort of liberal supporters in terms of their bread and butter, um, they do skew a bit older. They skew towards homeowners. Um, If you're a homeowner, you're not exactly upset with the status quo. What about that big uh, Gen Z and millennial base that that Trudeau has uh, depended on for so long? Sure. Um, So I think the idea until recently is young people don't vote. um, Mm -hmm. And when they do, they're swayed by superficial things like TikTok, uh, you know, like having fancy socks. And, um, you know, things, uh, things of the like. But, um, you know, I, I think belatedly, um, and I'm a millennial, um, Trudeau is belatedly beginning to realize that, you know, millennials aren't that young anymore. There's a lot of us, most of us in our 30s, we're even inching towards our 40s. Um, a lot of us are looking to start families. Um, you know, a lot of us are looking to own our first homes. Um, so I think these sorts of issues, uh, you know, that Polyev has been hammering on uh, for the past year, 
um, they're going to be really effective at mobilizing, in particular, millennials. Can the prime minister stop the bleeding, or is this going to take wholesale changes, as in a leadership change? Well, I would never say never. I mean, we've seen him get out of tight spots before, um, but it seems as though, you know, we're seeing this kind of death spiral narrative. Um, and the narrative, you know, once it's, you know, we're seeing the slow death of the Liberal Party, um, that's a very challenging narrative to change. I mean, in terms of um, leadership change, I think, unfortunately for the Liberal Party, um, for better or worse, the Liberal brand is Justin Trudeau. And Justin Trudeau is the liberal brand. I think anyone else at the helm um, would would do potentially substantially worse. Um, at the very least, Justin Trudeau is the devil you know. And I think Justin Trudeau, um, for better or worse, perhaps dispiritingly, is the party's best option uh, heading into the next election. Are you surprised, uh, you know, as, as someone who studies politics, that this party has taken so long to read the room? No, I'm not. Um, so uh, governments have a certain shelf life. I think uh, I think it was Mark Twain who had a quote that, you know, governments and diapers should be changed frequently and, and for the same reason. So I think, you know, you get um, and you saw this with Harper, um, you know, kind of you get seven, eight, nine years in, um, you lose your A team. Um, the bubble who stays t- tends to be an insular bubble. Um, you know, the prime minister is surrounded with yes people. Um, so it's actually quite common um, that at this kind of late stage of their tenure, um, you see a disconnect between federal governments and, um, and the public. I think it's part of a fairly well-established lifestyle that we saw um, with the Harper government around 2014, 2015. Uh, the feds will say that, you know, if they're not angry, that this is a communications issue. The public just doesn't understand what we're doing, which I find hard to believe because one of the prime minister's best qualities is his ability, his charisma to communicate, and that they haven't been attacking Pierre Polyev enough. Um, is it that or is it they're just on the wrong page? It's just the wrong policy. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the only option left is for them to go scorch earth. Um, and that could go one way or the other. I mean, you could go, um, you know, the Kim Campbell, you know, kind of uh, route that, you know, that could lead you to two seats and a, and a huge uh, disastrous defeat. Or, you know, the Kathleen win against Tim Hudak route. So, I mean, that's um, a very high risk, high reward strategy. But I think that's, uh, you know, their card left to play is that, um, you know, I think they've allowed, um, you know, Pierre Polyev to make this transition from sort of a top dog firebrand. Um, to this kind of nice, dorky, unassuming 40-something dad, uh, you know, whom he'd have a beer with, and who, you know, who's surprisingly Jack. Um, you know, they kind of let him over the summer, um, you know, really execute this image change, change quite effectively. Um, so I think they could start attacking him more. Um, but again, you know, it might be a little too, little too late. What about where's the NDP in all of this? I mean, obviously, they're in the partnership. They're propping the uh, the liberals up. Uh, are they benefiting from this? Will they? Because their party seem to be or their numbers are just as low as the liberals. So historically, uh, the NDP has been more plugged in with the labor movement. Um, and you have seen increasing labor strife uh, with high interest generally. Sorry, with um, high inflation. Uh, generally speaking, as you know, you see inflation increase, um, you know, you see strikes, you see job actions begin to go up. Um, so I think there's that natural constituency with the NDP that's not there with the liberals. Um, the issue with the NDP is I don't think Jagmeet Singh and, you know, his $15,000 Rolexes. Um, I don't think, you know, the person of Jagmeet Singh um, ever appealed to that constituency particularly well. Um, and, and I don't know if um, he has the, uh, the skill or political acumen um, to harness some of the populist anger that's out there, um, particularly uh, among among workers, I think Jagmeet Singh would be more popular or more successful as a liberal. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think uh, he's jo- cast. 
Yeah, Dr. Raheem Mohammed with us, political commentator and writer specializing in comparative politics, uh, former professor, college, uh, Center College, Wake Forest University. Raheem, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Likewise. Have a great weekend. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. We have to throw in the word rapporteur as often as we can now. Rapporteur. What did you say? Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CHML. Rapporteur. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You actually heard... Uh, he he made it and he, and he got cut into one of our IDs. It's not even his show. It's our show. I think that was him. Were you saying special rapporteur? Oh, yeah. What a great word. What a great word. I mean, it was a stupid concept and it per, it, per, it turned out really badly, but what a great word. It will, it should be on a menu. I'll have the rapporteur. Well, every, you know, forget waiter. Let's get rid of the word waiter and just call everyone a uh, rapporteur. Hello, rapporteur. Rapporteur. It's yes. like that, it's like Disney movie. What was that Disney movie called with the mouse? Um, that was, uh, ratatouille. Ratatouille. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. See, the rat, the rapporteur can bring you the ratatouille. Ratatouille. Uh, all righty. You got Jason Farr on tonight, so that'll be good. Uh, it'll seemed, be busy. It'll be, like, it'll be very active. It seemed like this was a good week to have a former city councilor on to talk about some of the stuff because holy moly has stuff been happening this week. Hey, do you think Jason, do you think Jason Farr will be a city councilor again? You know, I'll ask him, I'll ask him if he's inclined to run. See, I, I look at stuff that happens like a week, like this week where, you know, um, who, who, who has not been repeatedly dropped on their head as a child wants to be a city councilor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, seriously, seriously. Yeah. 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 And, and, and then the people that do run sometimes, um, you know, uh, they get in and I'm quite sure, I mean, we've seen it with people who have bailed after one term where they say, yeah, yeah this was not what I thought it was going to be. Well, and, everybody starts thinking they're going to make a difference and help. And then yes. unfortunately all hell breaks loose. Well, not only that, uh, you'd better, if, if you're going to go into it with that feeling. I mean, look, it's good that you want to go in and you want to make a difference. We, we applaud that kind of thing in, in, in any kind of politician, but if you're going to be, you know, let's say federal or provincial, if you're in a tiny minority third party, it almost feels like you're wasting your time, doesn't it? Or if yeah. you are on a city council and th- three quarters of the council is way left and you're right, or three quarters is way right and you're left, boy, it feels like you're just beating your head against the wall because you can't do, there's nothing you can do. There's no. nothing you can do. So no. you kind of have to hope that you get brought in on a swell of similar minded people or a very open minded council. But I don't know when we've had one of those lately. It's, it seems very often lately that we have had councils where there are groups that vote in a block, not officially, not technically, but where you go and look at the votes and by the end of the term, you go, wow, they voted together a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it seems that everybody's radio silence now. Everybody's kind of running into their corners and because of the beginning of the week, the middle of the week, and now it's like radio silence. Shh. On which, which thing? Because there's a million of them. On well, which thing? On, on that, on the hats, on the tiny homes, yes. on even the, the, you know, discussion about the tent encampments and such. I mean, it's, it's, you can tell people are trying to cool it down. Well, I think there's also something that happened this week that probably had an impact on that is that 
if you are someone who tr- is trying to tell people, oh, you know, there's absolutely no risk. You're, you're, you're exaggerating all oh, this. Going, yeah. We've had what, three either shootings Beasley? or stabbings yeah. or beatings at local parks. It's not a great yeah. week to tell people, oh, there's nothing going on here. Yeah. So they're not going to be out there trumpeting the fact that it's all just peaceful people sitting, having a camp out. That's not what this is. And at the same time, you know, there's also, I think on the other side, people are just honestly getting a little tired of talking about it and they just want some answers. They just want some results and they want the city to, I'll tell you what they want the city to do. A lot of the people who are against it is you've now passed a protocol three weeks ago or so. Let's do something with the protocol. And you know, there I'm, I'm on an email list. I don't know how I got on it. I didn't ask to be on it. I got added to it and that's fine. It's good. You get to know what's going on. Uh, there is one park in town where the residents around that park are furious with their counselor saying, you passed a, r- a bylaw, you passed a yeah. protocol three weeks ago, and there are now more tents in our park. Nothing about this park conforms to your protocol. Why are they not being removed? I'm, al- I'm also getting a few notes about liability and That's you know, what, ha- what if something gets hurt? What, you know, all these one. kids that are witnessing, what if something happens? What if, and, and again, again, it's and a you time pray it's that a time it doesn't, bomb. no, but yeah. you pray that it doesn't, and yeah. maybe it won't, and you really hope that it won't. But you're right. What if, what if, and, and, you know, the cities, look, we banned tobogganing because of the <laughs> what if. <laughs> cities that are. That is a, that is an excellent point. No, but they, they do no stuff. No tobogganing, they but do set stuff up your because, tent. They do stuff because they are so conscious. Their lawyers are so conscious of insurance mm. fears. And then with this one, where I think realistically, it's not out of the realm of possibility that something bad could happen because many of the people, not all, many of the people in these encampments are in really tough spots, either with mental health issues or addiction issues. That's unpredictable. You can't even predict what might happen. It may look fine, but you can't predict this. And I think that's a weird thing that we are so, that the city is so cautious with so much stuff and this, they go, okay. I know it's good. I can see this. I, you know, I didn't realize this till you brought it up, but I can see it. I can see it happening, Scott. All of a sudden this winter, we're going to see the kids tobogganing down the hill and crashing into people with tents. I, I wasn't suggesting Boom. that. I Boom. wasn't suggesting no, Boom. no cross country skiing. and yeah. propane tanks flying everywhere. No cross country skiing among the encampments. All right. Scott Radley coming up uh, after the six o'clock news, along with former counselor Jason Farr. I'm sure it'll be exciting. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck and uh, have a great weekend. You have a great weekend too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word this time from frank via email banks have had such a free reign on controlling the economy to their liking oh yes there's always a need to control the rise of inflation however trying to whip the country with several hefty interest rates hikes in as many months is proving to be lethal against allowing people to save enough money to obtain a bloody down payment on a home says frank 